Well, this morning our task is threefold. Number one, as usual, we desire to acknowledge and to worship our triune God. That should always be our primary task when we gather together as a congregation. But in addition to this, today marks a special Sunday in the life of the church calendar at large, and that is that it is Reformation Sunday. This event is celebrated on the Sunday that is closest to October 31st, the day that Martin Luther had his 95 theses nailed to the Wittenberg church door, where he personally said, trick or treat at that point. And third, in addition to this, we as a local body are celebrating our 20th anniversary of being known as the Congregation of Providence Baptist Church. To preach a sermon that is fair to all three of these objectives is a monumental task, especially when we need to be out on time for our fellowship this afternoon, because I know there are many of you who covet that golden ladle award for the best chili. So now more than ever, I covet your prayers. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in awe. We sit before you humbly and say, how great a God. We are so unworthy of every grace that you have given us. It's one thing to be imparted salvation. It is another to be given a wonderful place to worship full of wonderful people who love you dearly and desire to see you glorified, exalted, and desire to love one another in that process and to encourage one another to continue to lift you up. Thank you for the many graces that you have given us through the body of the church through the centuries. And because of this, Lord, we want to give you all praise. We want to acknowledge you as being the key one who is behind all of this, orchestrating all of it, so that your name might be made much of. We pray this all in the finished work of Christ. Amen. Well, on March 22nd, 1758, the American colonies lost the most brilliant scholar that ever lived in our lands. Most of us know Jonathan Edwards as the great revivalist of the Great Awakening. But history, particularly even secular scholars, view him as the greatest American-born philosopher. In Edwards' lifetime, he saw a mass revival sweep across the colonies. He wrote about it, and he convinced his fellow Calvinistic pastors that the revival was legitimate. God was doing a remarkable work among them of saving souls on a large scale. And what gave credence to Edwards' testimony about the revival was that he was also known as a brilliant scholar. He was the grandson of the Puritan Solomon Stoddard. He was widely published. He had public interactions with some of the most formidable minds, both in the Americas and in Britain. And while Edwards loved to study the Scripture, he was also a student of nature. He often read and, and wrote his notes while riding on horseback. His keen mind was active, and he wrote on every single scrap of paper that he could find, even within the margins of his books. There is so much manuscript material that new works continue to be published and released to this day. In fact, to total, there is 26 volumes so far. John Piper credits Edwards with leading him towards what he calls Christian hedonism. Edwards taught that nothing is more supreme than God's glory save God himself. And it was not just our duty, but our benefit to enjoy God's glory to its fullest. 
He was an incredible man. But few are aware that Edwards was kicked out of his own church in Northampton. Edwards took the scriptural stand that only believers in Christ should participate in the Lord's Supper. His church members believed, much like Douglas Wilson does today, that partaking of the Lord's Supper was a converting influence for the lost. Edwards argued rightly that only those who were assured that Christ had died for them should partake of the supper. Otherwise, mockery was being made of the right, and souls were eating and drinking damnation unto themselves. This went against how his congregation had practiced the supper ever since Edward's grandfather was in the pulpit, so they kicked him out. Though in great demand as a preacher, Edwards next took a small church upon the dangerous American frontier in order to reach the Native Americans with the gospel. He was inspired by his friend David Brainerd, who had given his life in such a cause, and whom Edwards had authored his biography from Brainerd's journals. He made very little money from his work. And a little later, after his son-in-law died, he also took over the presidency of what would later be called Princeton University, but in those days, a very small institution. And as a man both of faith and science, he led by example by taking a smallpox injection or inoculation And Edwards, who had always been frail in health, died from the botched injection. I can't help but wonder what his last days were like as he lay there dying of smallpox. Here he was, America's greatest philosopher. He had been instrumental in the Great Awakening, sweeping across the colonies, overseen thousands, saved, published numerous influential works, and yet there he laid in his bed, abandoned by his congregation, almost penniless, and dying from an inoculation that should have worked. I wonder how he felt. Did he say and did he pray to his God in this moment, this is not what I expected for my life? Edwards is not the only figure within church history that has had similar risings and fallings. Athanasius, the 4th century bishop from Africa, who can say without a doubt was instrumental in the church's right understanding of the Trinity, was exiled no fewer than five times by the emperor of Rome. The great 3rd century preacher John Chrysostom, which means John the Golden Mouth, rose to fame not only for his preaching, but for taking a stand on literal interpretation of the scriptures. People loved to hear him preach only to have the emperor banish him due to his petty jealousy of his fellow bishops, and he died in obscurity. Did either of these men also say, this is not what I expected, Lord? Our passage of Scripture this morning has a similar theme. If you're not there, please turn back to 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to encourage you to, to actually turn to your Bibles in this, not just look on your worship guide. We're going to look at the last words of the Apostle Paul. Apart from the Lord Jesus, there has not been a greater influence upon Western society than Paul. So allow me to to provide you here with a brief biography of this man. Paul, who was once known as Saul, rose to prominence in Jewish circles. He could trace his lineage back to the tribe of Benjamin. He knew the scriptures inside and out, and as he put it, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a disciple of the great Jewish philosopher and teacher Gamaliel. And to top this off, Paul was an official Roman citizen, which carried considerable prestige in Roman-occupied Jerusalem. He could practice his religion and be assured that no Roman soldier could interfere with him. 
When Paul heard about Jesus and his followers, his ambition knew no bounds. He desired to eradicate Christianity off the planet. But Christ met him as he was traveling to persecute Christians in Damascus. And the Jewish Saul converted to Christianity and changed his name to Paul, a more Gentile accessible name. And he now made it his life's ambition to make Jesus known throughout the known world by preaching his gospel. In the decades following his conversion, he did precisely that. He taught and preached the word. He evangelized and led numerous people to Christ. He discipled young men and leaders from other cultures. And he planted churches across the pagan empire. Over his career, he traveled over 7,000 miles and was responsible for planting at least 14 churches. And in 2 Timothy, we get some semblance of what his life was like in his last days. We can also capture his mindset as he was enduring to the end. So in the time I have remaining with you, I'd like to make four broad observations from 2 Timothy chapter 4 and provide us with four applications as we celebrate our own 20th anniversary this morning. The first observation is that as far as recorded history lets us know, this is one of the lowest moments in the Apostle Paul's life. This is one of the lowest moments in his life. According to the first chapter of this letter, Paul is suffering in a jail cell. He is in prison. He is being restricted to a single location and is unable to fulfill his mission of preaching the gospel from place to place. In addition to being confined, he was lonely. He had been deserted by many friends. In chapter 1, verse 15, he wrote, Timothy, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Thagelus and Hermogenes, two people whom it would seem was unlikely and shocking that left Paul. Another mentioned here in the fourth chapter is Demas in verse 10. Demas, who accompanied Paul on this trip, didn't just desert him, but appears to have abandoned the faith entirely. Some of Paul's loneliness was due to the fact that there were so few workers and they were needed elsewhere. Crescens was sent to Galatia. Titus was sent to Dalmatia. Erastus was still needed in Corinth. Paul was lonely for his long-term companions. He desired John Mark to visit him. And he tells Timothy here in verse 9, Do your best to come to me soon. In addition to his restricted freedom and his loneliness, he has anxiety about the other churches and his fellow workers. He has friends scattered throughout the empire needing his help. And he has friends who are intensely ill, like Trophimus in verse 20. Outside of Luke, Paul has sent his resources elsewhere for the sake of the gospel. Only Luke was present to comfort and defend him. And yet, there are also those who still desire to do ill intent to Paul. Alexander the coppersmith, for one. Alexander wants to blot out the message of the gospel, so Paul warns Timothy that he might try to harm his young protege as well. But even as Paul was on trial from merely presenting the gospel, we read here in verse 16, At my first defense, no one can to stand by me, but all deserted me. Nothing seemed to hurt Paul's heart more than to have friends abandon him, friends whom he thought he could trust implicitly. And to top it all off, his strength is slowly ebbing away. Paul knows that he is dying. 
He is being poured out like a drink offering, and he knows his time of departure from this world is at bay. So he's writing this letter to Timothy to impart final instruction should his young friend not make it in time. Paul is at one of the lowest periods of his life. The second observation I wish to make is that Paul knows that the work of the gospel is still going on. The gospel is still spreading and continuing. In verse 5, he encourages Timothy to keep on with the work. Prisca and Aquila are working alongside the former slave Onesiphorus. Erastus is still in Corinth. Crescens is in the province of Galatia. Titus in Dalmatia. And Tychicus is overseeing Paul's previous ministry in Ephesus. The work is still continuing, and yet Paul is wasting away in a jail cell. Did he feel like he was sidelined at this moment? Did he look around himself at this point and think, wait a second, this is not how this is supposed to be. This is not what I expected. I should be the one out there. I should be leading. After all, I was the one that made the sacrifices to to get these churches up and running. And this leads us to our third observation. Paul was confident that this situation was God's will for his life. Paul was confident that this situation was God's will for his life. Even despite the opposition he underwent from Alexander, he could say in verse 15, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. In verses 7 and 8, it appears he was reconciled that this was God's will for him as he declared that the time for my departure has come. He says, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord. The righteous judge will award to me on that day. And in verse 5, he could confidently tell Timothy, endure suffering because he himself had been suffering. So Paul could have wept and cried in jail. He could have had a pity party and said, I have lost so much. Things did not turn out for me like I thought. There is no glory for me to be had in this jail cell. I guess I'll just sit here and die. But that leads me to our last observation. Paul saw this time in prison as an opportunity to prepare the next generation. What was he doing? He was writing his young disciples and instructing them. He encouraged Timothy in the first five verses. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. And he wanted Timothy to do the same with others. In fact, if you look back at chapter 2, he wrote, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul wanted that training of ministry to continue even past his jail cell. 
And even more remarkable, as he hoped Timothy would be able to visit him in verse 13, maybe one of the most important verses in the Bible to me, he tells Timothy, swing by trials and pick up my books and my parchments. Something I have to tell Lisa all the times. You see, God wants ministers to have books, honey. He wants them to have them. Look, Paul didn't ask for creature comforts like throw pillows and rugs or Christmas decorations. He said, bring me the books. (laughs) Praise God. (laughs) Paul saw his time in prison as a time to study even, to continue to hone his skills in the Word of God and remain useful as the Lord's servant. He was always learning. Of course, we also know the Word was always speaking to him, always comforting him. Paul wanted to serve the next generation in any way that he could, even if he was confined in a jail cell. Perhaps he set the example for Martin Luther. When Luther was confined to Wartburg Castle as a fugitive, he took the opportunity to translate the Bible in German so that all citizens might have access to the Word of God, not just the clergy. When Calvin was exiled from his beloved Geneva, he wrote and refined the Institutes of Christian Religion, one of the most important works of the Reformation. And our dear Baptist brother, John Bunyan, wrote one of the most beloved stories in the English language, The Pilgrim's Progress, when he was jailed for preaching in public against the established church's wishes. So let me recount from those observations from 2 Timothy 4 here. Number one, Paul was at the lowest point of his life. Number two, even though he was in jail, the work of the gospel was still continuing. Number three, Paul knew that even these events were ordained by God and his will. And number four, Paul saw that his time there in jail was still an opportunity to prepare the next generation. So let's transition and turn this back to us. The church of the Lord Jesus extends much further back than just the 20 years of providence. Over the last two millennia, the Lord has preserved his people in good times and in bad. The words of Jesus have proven to be true. Upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Those words didn't mean that Satan wouldn't rush the walls or the gates, but in the battle, the gates will hold. The forces of hell will not envelop the church. It cannot overcome us because the victory has already been won. Jesus Christ defeated sin and Satan at the cross when he stood in our place and he received the due penalty of our sin. That job was finished, it is done. And the proof that it was complete was when Jesus was raised from the grave. He is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding on behalf of his beloved church for all of eternity. So while we live on this earth, the devil rages against us. Our flesh cries out to be satisfied with sin. There are battles that we are still to face, but the war has already been achieved, and it's certain. The history of the church proves that. And not only the church at large, but even within our own local body here. I look around me at times and I think, this is not what I expected. In my mind, I wasn't supposed to be your pastor. Last place I thought I would ever be was in Alabama. That's no offense to Alabama, all right? I just thought I'd be overseas someplace. 
I never thought I would pastor in this place that meant so much to me and my family. This is not what I expected when I got back from England. Also, there are saints that have left us that I expected to still be by our side at this point. Some have departed for other places, either through a move or to other churches, and some have gone home to be with the Lord. I've watched this church endure shame. I've watched this church endure loss. I've watched members of this church endure grief and sickness. I've watched this church have low points in giving, wondering how we're going to get the bills paid. I've watched this church endure pandemics and and political strife and challenges in the work of the gospel. And guess what, folks? We're still standing. Every challenge, every difficulty that has come upon us has revealed that we are not standing in our own power, but in the power of our Almighty God. And if the walls of this building should come down, either through an earthquake or a tornado, the Lord's people, His saints, will endure forevermore. It's already written in the book of life. So with that in the background, let me just give you four brief applications that we can take from what we've just studied. These are important, so I encourage you to write them down. Number one, like the Apostle Paul, our job is to preserve and proclaim the truth of the Bible. Let me read just a bit of 2 Timothy chapter 3 to you. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. That sounds remarkably like our own culture in this day, does it not? And what our culture needs is not more self-affirmation. What our culture needs is not more positivity, nor does it need more political maneuvering, nor does it need for some kind of outside force to be applied for people to submit to it. What it needs is the pure, unadulterated truth of the gospel. That's what it needs. Therefore, it's up to us as the people of God to preserve it and then to proclaim it. That is how people are transformed. It's an internal process that happens by the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of the Word, and that Word must be pure if it's going to work correctly. Which brings us to the second application. We must seek the lost. Paul was very specific to Timothy here in verse 5. Do the work of an evangelist. Paul didn't say, well, circle the wagons, Timothy, in this sinful culture. Have nothing to do with them. No, he said, go and tell them. Proclaim the good news. And our mission is the same. I'm not personally satisfied with the six missionary families that we support. I'm not satisfied with the single unreached people group that we have adopted. 
I'm not satisfied with the four domestic church plants that we've supported outside of our area, and I'm not satisfied with the two churches we just recently started in Tennessee and and also here in Huntsville, nor with the one that Brian will launch in January. I will do everything within my power to see that the lost that we come in contact with have the opportunity to hear the gospel, for that is the Lord's will. I will leave the saving to my God, but my job is to make sure they hear the good news. Church, are you with me? I said, are you with me? How can we fail in this endeavor when our Savior has already told us, I have sheep that are not of this fold, and they will hear my voice, and they will come to me. We cannot fail. He who holds all authority in heaven and earth has promised that he will be with us to the very end of the earth. How could we fail? We cannot. And church history and the history of this church has proven that. Now, we could stop there. But wait, there's more. Application number three. We must prepare the next generation. As long as the Lord gives us days, we must prepare the next generation. That's what Paul is doing in this letter. And we must do the same. We must disciple our young ones. That means you need to be in church being discipled and gaining knowledge and wisdom of how to disciple others. Then you need to have your families in this place learning how to be discipled as well. Older folks, I'm going to challenge you specifically I know you love your children and your grandchildren, and well, you should, but what are you doing now to ensure that this next generation in this place is being built up? God did not call you to retirement. He called you to build his kingdom. When Rick and Giselle call out for workers, they shouldn't have to beg. They should already have a list of people pleading with them, please let me work with the children. The same goes for our nursery and our youth ministry. Where are you plugged in right now to disciple the next generation? You say, well, I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. Well, let me give you an example. Pick up your phone and you call, hey, John, how you doing, man? I'm going to be cutting my neighbor's yard. Can you come help me? You can? Great. I will pick you up. And when John is in my truck, I'm going to ask him questions like, how's your Bible study going? What is God teaching you these days? How could I pray for you right now, John? And then I'm going to pray with John, and I'm going to share what God is is doing with me, and I'm going to do this on a regular basis. And you can do this in any ministry of the church, washing dishes in the kitchen, trimming the bushes out front, cooking for K group, counting the offering, watching after children in the nursery. It's not hard. We must seek ways to build up the next generation. I would say that there is no reason, no reason whatsoever that every Christian in this room should be engaged at least with one other Christian one-on-one discipling them. In fact, I would say since Jesus commands us to do so, if you are deliberately avoiding that command, then you are sinning. You hear me, folks? And the last application, we must expend ourselves for a greater glory. There is nothing greater than our God's glory and his reputation, and that includes your own reputation. 
That is why Edwards went to the frontier to engage the lost Native Americans. It was why Athanasius and John Chrysostom and Calvin endured exile. It's why Newton and Luther endured persecution and imprisonment. Nothing is more important than proclaiming the glory of this incredible God who loves us, who created us, who saved us from our sins. Nothing. And it's time, folks, that we stop being enamored with this world more than our God. We cannot sit back on our laurels at this point and say, well, 20 years was a good run. No, we must expend ourselves even more. Why? Because he's worthy. Because he's worthy of it. I remember hearing uh, Ben Patterson interview Helen uh, Rosevere. And I've shared this story before, but I think it's still relevant today. She was a medical missionary to the Congo, and rather than flee the country when rebels came through, she decided to stay and help the sick there. And when the rebels came through, she was brutally raped and tortured. And as she shared her experience with Patterson over his radio show, he was in tears. And when they went to a break, he looked at her and he said, Helen, I got to ask you, was it worth it? What you endured and what you went through? And she looked at him thoughtfully and she paused for a minute and she said, no, but he is worthy. He is worthy of my all. And he is. How could he who gave up his own son for us to be reconciled to him, how could we not also want to give our all? He is worthy. He is worth it. You're going to die someday. It's going to happen. History shows us that. Even the Word of God says that unless the Lord comes, you're going to die. What do you want your life to reflect and show that you were found to be most important? What do you want your life to show as being the most important thing? Would you want it to be your family? Would you want it to be your possessions? Would you want it to be your awards that might be on your mantle or in your office? Or would you want it to be something that's eternal? Something that would last for all of eternity, the glory of God, so that when you stand before him, he will look at you and he will say, well done, faithful servant. Well done. Because in God's world and in his mission, you cannot fail. You can't fail. You may go through hardships. You may go through strife. But if you are in the Lord's will, you cannot fail him ever. That's what Paul had learned in that jail cell. This isn't what I expected. But I know 
I know to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's what he wrote in verse 18. Let's pray. Lord, it is so easy to get enamored with this world. It's so easy to to think only of the here and now. It's so easy to think of the most pressing issues in our life, whether it's political strife, whether it's our finances, whether it's relationship difficulties, that we lose in the midst of that your glory. And that's what the enemy wants us to do. He wants us to be consumed with all these other things rather than to be consumed with your glory. And so, Lord, we pray for ourselves as a church going forward. We pray that we would realize the only things worth living for are the things of you. The only things that are worth expending our lives for are you. And so, Lord, we pray that that as we learn this process, that we would realize that you are a mighty fortress for us. You do hold us, that you have said through your Son, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him, and that he will be with us to the very end of the age. So, Lord, let our confidence be in that, not our confidence in worldly things, not in things that will pass away, not in things that are perishable, but in the hope that is in Jesus Christ, a sure foundation, knowing that all things will come about that he has declared to be true. And so, Lord, let our eyes look forward towards heaven. Let us look forward knowing that you have already given us all the tools that we need to win in this battle, that we don't have to look for more. We don't need extra tricks. We don't even need additional revivals unless you choose to bless them with us. We just need the word of God and to proclaim that solidly. Thank you for Jesus who manifests this reality for us and who has paid our sin debt so that we might approach your throne. We pray this in his finished work. Amen.